from training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 78. Today's guest is an accomplished athlete, coach, and businessman. But what I think is really cool about this episode is he jumped way outside his comfort zone to really learn about something that interested him that he didn't quite understand. And now it's become a topic that he's writing and presenting on a lot more. He sought out a lot of the best experts in the world to learn from. And I think he treats it as a a way to create a very compelling story um, on how we can improve the training for our athletes and, you know, things that we can also apply in the clinical context for rehabilitation. So I think we're in for a really good show on some stuff that doesn't necessarily get the attention that it deserves. Overuse injuries have emerged as one of the biggest threats to players at every level of competition. As an example, at the professional level, ulnar collateral ligament injuries at the elbow alone sideline pitchers for an average of over 17 months. That's a ton of lost development and a threat to lengthy careers. Just as concerningly though, for youth players, overuse is the predominant mechanism of injury. So what can be done? Obviously, we need to train athletes to be prepared for all the stresses the game throws at them. However, the other side of the equation, recovery, often doesn't get the attention it deserves. Healthy, recovered arms mean you can stay in the game and give your best on the field, and that's where Mark Pro comes in. Mark Pro is a cutting-edge recovery tool that provides all the benefits of active recovery, but without the extra effort, muscular fatigue, or stress to tendons and joints. Players can use Mark Pro as long as needed for exceptional recovery between training sessions or after games. We'll often send Mark Pro units back with athletes to their hotels or even have them use them on team flights. Both easy to use and portable, Mark Pro is a powerful tool that allows recovery anywhere, anytime. Use it while relaxing at home, on the road, or during tournaments. On a personal note, I was originally a naysayer when it came to Mark Pro. However, longtime Cressy Sports Performance athlete Corey Kluber turned me on to it. He adopted Mark Pro into his post-pitching recovery approach, and it was an integral part of him going out and throwing 200 innings year after year. This led me to experiment with it myself and with more of our athletes, and the feedback was consistently outstanding. Now, just a few years later, you'll see it in every major league organization as part of the routines of some of the most accomplished baseball players on the planet. If you're looking for the same results enjoyed by these athletes, visit markpro.com and use the coupon code CRESSY at checkout for an exclusive discount. Again, that's markpro.com, M-A-R-C-P-R-O.com, and use the coupon code CRESSY, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, at checkout for an exclusive discount. Today's guest attended Iona College and was a multiple-time NCAA Division I All-American in track and field. He also competed in the 1988 U.S. Olympic Trials in the Javelin. While he graduated with a degree in finance, his quest to improve his own performance led him to the strength and conditioning field. He attended the University of Florida and served as a graduate assistant strength coach to the Gators track and field and football teams. He eventually moved back home and founded Parisi Speed School in late 1992. In 1993, he opened his first sports performance facility in Wyckoff, New Jersey. At this time, he was a consultant to the New York Giants as well. As the business thrived, it expanded to include multiple locations, including the 2000 opening of its flagship facility in Fairlawn, New Jersey. It's a 32,000 square foot center that has been home to more than 250,000 athletes and hundreds of professionals in every major sport. In 2005, Parisi Speed School began franchising to health-related businesses in the U.S. 
His idea was spot on as Breezy Speed School would go on to be named Franchise Times Fast 55 list in 2009. By 2016, more than 650,000 athletes had trained through its system, now available in more than 90 facilities and health clubs in 31 states. He has lectured extensively and contributed in written content for a number of sports and health-related organizations. I've been fortunate to speak alongside him on the Perform Better Tour for many years now, and as you'll learn, that's where I became most intrigued with this area of study for him, the fascial system. His new book, Fascia Training, A Whole System Approach, is a great read and the foundation for much of our discussion on this podcast. Please welcome to the show, Bill Parisi. Hey, Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me. I'm excited for this. So you're one of the presentations on Perform Better every year that I get really excited because you can go in a lot of different directions, right? You've been doing speed training. You've been doing business development for, for decades now, and and you've gone into the fascia world. So this uh, this intrigued me a lot when I saw it as a presentation on the Perform Better uh, setup. And I know we were, we were actually supposed to speak at a, a conference together that got unfortunately shut down by COVID, so I didn't get to see it in person. So this is a podcast I, I definitely wanted to schedule. So I'm, oh. curi- I'm curious, man, what led you down this path? What, what made fascia so intriguing to you as kind of the next step in your career? Yeah, well, thank you. First, thanks for having me, Eric. I really, I'm a fan of yours and you do great work. And thanks for just pioneering the industry, um, you know, from, the, from many perspectives, so specifically the whole, the whole shoulder thing. But to answer your question, um, the fascia thing started, you know, I, I've been a, uh, on this quest, right. Uh, continuing to uh, grow my knowledge base. And I'm going to, even today I'm going to seminars, I'm going to, you know, clinics. So I went out to Altus and, uh, you know, Dan Path's a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. I met Dan who's, you know, world-class track and field coach, uh, coach Chris Sims, when he was a quarterback at Texas, I'm dating myself now, <laughs> uh, going back 20 years. And um, recently, maybe four or five years ago, I'm, a, I'm down at Altus and I'm hanging out. I, you know, I, go, I visited Dan in, in, in his hometown in Texas, and he's talking about fascia, fascia, fascia. He sent me a couple articles, and I, I, I just it all came together for me. Like I, was, I, I, I stayed up, believe it or not, almost 48 hours straight. Like I couldn't sleep. <laughs> I, I read every article I can get. I just became just fascinated, and I said, "Wow." There's a whole missing link here. And I started putting the pieces together and I realized this newly discovered organ in the body, this connective tissue organ, which has 10 times more of the proprioceptors than muscle, has recently been discovered um, because we now have the technology equipment to, to look at it uh, under the microscope and really look at it at a deep level. So that was really that you know initially got me on this research path, but, you know, familiar with it for 20 plus years, like a lot of people foam rolling and this is, you know, packing material or wrapping around the muscle, epimyosin, endo, you know, peri, we have these things and we never give it much thought, but now after the research, after, you know, looking at this, this, this is a system that is up there with the muscular system, the nervous system, the cardiovascular system from a training perspective. Mm -hmm. This is the fourth system um, it, 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 from a training perspective that we've overlooked that we have to look at. That's super intriguing. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like when you look back on, I mean, you were a really accomplished javelin thrower. You know, you look back on, on your own training like we always do. You know, is it, would this have been a game changer for you? I mean, you were, you were very good. Would, would this have been what made you great world class? You know what's funny? Um, luckily, I'm going to say this is luck. I've been doing a lot of things right, you know, by accident. Yeah. 
And being a thrower, you know, being an overhanded thrower, and I say this joke all the time, you know, I threw, you know, 237, you know, I was a two-time Division One All-American, I competed in Europe, went to Finland, and for a five foot ten Italian from North Jersey, I mean, that's pretty good, right? I mean, <laughs> normally, you know, uh, you know, high level jab throwers are typically, you know, six three Norwegians, you know, big guys. But when I went to Finland, I was so into it. I, I have this mentality that I, I, I go in attack mode. So in college, I actually put a fundraiser together, and I went to Finland for a summer to train with the best in the world. Back in 1988, Tapios Kuros won the gold medal in the javelin. The Finns were dominating the jab. They still, in a lot of ways, still do really well. The Germans are doing well right now. Uh, but the Finns, the Germans, they do really well. So I went to Finland for a summer in 1989. And I, I this is where my world changed in terms of medicine ball training, kettlebell training, physio, physio ball, all these different uh, training tools I became a lot more familiar with in the late 80s. And it was paradigm shifting for me. And one thing I didn't realize, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot of the right training. The Parisi Speed School, that's a, you know, a lot of what we do, similar stuff. Um, but a lot of that stuff is training the fascist system. I didn't even know it. Uh, but but so I've kind of done these things, always prescribed to them. Like our system or our speed development system is really based around the fascist system. Just mm -hmm. ironically, it worked out that way. It's a lot of movement-based training. You know, we do do strength training. It's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. But I think we we overkill the sagittal plane strength yep. stuff, yep. and um, but really that to answer your question, um, no, I really probably wouldn't have changed much. Some things definitely I I would have, but I have a much better understanding now, and I understand why medicine ball training and all these other uh, omnidirectional submaximal loading movements are important. Not you know neuromuscularly, yeah, they play a role to help mm -hmm. develop uh, neural pathways and motor engrams. But there is a system that gets created, uh, and we can, you know, we'll talk more yeah. about that around around these movements. You know, and I think it's actually almost maybe important to like define the discussion because you you know you hear about self myofascial release, and you, you hear about fascial stretch therapy, and you hear about you know um you know various stuff in this world, and, and big words like extracellular matrix and all these things thrown around. So when when we define the fascial system to you. What does it mean? What is it? What does it encompass? It's kind of like, you know, you hear the core and that means 5 million different things to a bunch of different clinicians and people in the, you know, kind of the layman's community. So when you actually hear that term, what do you, what do you speak to? Yeah, really, it, 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 it's a connective tissue system is really what it is. It's this concept called tensegrity. And, and when you think about tensegrity, it's, it's, it's compression, you know, combined with, uh, you know, elastic, uh, um, uh, flexibility. So, so really, when I look at the to, to put it in layman's terms and to make it as simple as possible, really the fascist system is a system that really provides our elasticity. It really provides our balance. It's it's the system that really holds everything together in the human body. I mean, it wraps around organs, wraps around individual cells, uh, nerve cells, um, uh, cardiovascular you know systems. It, it wraps around. Every element of the body, muscles, organs, veins, nerves, arteries, everything. And it, it really gives your body its structural integrity. It really, you know, it's, it's very, very important. People used to think it was just some pack, you know, med medical doctors for, for 500 years thought it was just some packing material that was a filler and just a cellophane wrapping that didn't have much meaning. It has tons of meaning. And it really facilitates co-contraction. It does so much yeah. that we're learning now. Um, 
But yeah, it's it's like your internal wetsuit. Mm-hmm. So if you're a power lifter and you know you're gonna you want to put up a big bench, what do you do? You put on a you put on a, a bench press shirt, mm-hmm. right? Well, that bench press shirt has this stored elastic energy in it. You know that is our fascia system. That's how our fascia system acts, and it gets developed around the movements we do, the skills we perform. So a thrower, you know, um, Robert Schleip, who's a world-renowned researcher in Germany, did an ultrasound on the right peck of Thomas Roller, who's a world-class javelin thrower, and he has an aponeurosis around his, across his right peck, nothing on his left, similar to the bottom of his foot, two millimeters thick. Now, that aponeurosis of fascia was created because of his constant throwing. And a lot of your throwers, there's no doubt, probably no. have similar things if you do a, if you do an ultrasound on it's them. adaptation to impose demand we can see the same thing if we do a, a dexa scan of a throwing arm right we get increased bone density um, at the proximal humerus like the, you know you do the single fastest motion in all of sports there's going to be some adaptations that take place um you know what the first thing i thought about as you're talking about that is one of the most eye-opening moments in my career was sitting in an tommy john surgery and you know you you in your mind have this view of what a ligament looks like attaching bone to bone. You know, you're aware of some of these things like, Hey, you know, there's an ulnar nerve in the way they got to get that out of the way so they can get access to the ligament, which is the deepest component. But what no one ever talks about is, is what happens when they actually do the initial incision is, you know, there's, there's superficial fascia, there's deep fascias, the intermuscular septum. There's just a bunch of gunk in the way that you never expected to be there. And you realize that it's, you know, it's a, it's a much more complex anatomical surgery than just putting a graft in, and reattaching two bones effectively to do the work of a ligament. There's, there's a lot of stuff in the way. And do you think we're ever going to get to the day when these anatomy textbooks are rewritten to actually demonstrate what's really taking place on a, on a, you know, much more physiological performance-based scale? I, I believe they will. And I believe it's, it's in process. So I'm, I'm, I have the good fortunes to be on the board of directors of the Fascia Research Society, which are the leading researchers in the world around fascia. They run the Fascia Research Congress every three years. In 2018, it was in Berlin. And hopefully in 21, it's going to be in Montreal. I was just elected treasurer to the organization. It's a great nonprofit. And it's a research-based organization with the top guys that really have put this to the forefront. They've been around for about 15 years now. Um, to, to answer your question, Yes, it is happening. It is in the development. And to to go back, uh, one of my athletes, Chris Sims, who's now you know a, a very successful broadcaster yeah. at BC, when he was playing with Tampa, he ruptured his spleen. He didn't know it in a game. Finished the game. After the game, they checked him out. They rushed him to immediate surgery. He he, he brought his wife in, you know, to, to, to read his last rites. I mean, it was crazy. It was really scary. Right, ruptured his spleen. Performed the surgery. This was in 07, I believe, 06, 07. Um, post-surgery, you know, they, they just did the surgery, obviously, haphazardly. No regard for fashion. Now, we didn't know much back then. You know, we know a lot more now. It's, you know, 15 years later. But long story short, Chris, you know, had a rocket. Post-surgery, his rehab, unfortunately, at that time, um, did not facilitate or did not manage the whole connective tissue system effectively and he could never throw the football the same again mm-hmm. you know never because the the incisions you know in his abdominal region have a huge role as you know the core plays a huge role um but the muscle strength was there but that free energy that collagen related connective tissue tensegrity energy never came back to what it was and that's because you know the recovery process it gets matted and 
you know, we get this felt type connective uh, patterns. That's why we don't, you know, uh, mobilize, uh, immobilize that we, we lock people up in, in, in cast anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, obviously we, we that's voodoo, right? Yeah. To, to put someone in a cast post-surgery. Why? why? Yeah. You want to get them moving right away. So the fascia doesn't build up in this matted felt like, um, uh, material. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the, I mean, it's justification for getting people, you know, let's say you have an elbow surgery, right? The, the rest of you is pretty good. You know, you're talking about less than 10% of your body that's probably involved, like getting the rest of people moving. So I, I'm always adamant when we have, we see a post-op Tommy John, they're, they're, they're training in, you know, within 12 to 14 days after the surgery, as soon as the, the risk of infection is gone, because we, we have to impact those other systems, right? We have to work further up the yeah. chain. We have to impact the, uh, the lymphatic system to, you know, kind of help with how they recover from the stuff that they're doing physical therapy wise. And I, I think that gets missed too much. We just kind of like wait around and hope that people are going to be good globally. In reality, there's, there's a lot of things that can go wrong. A, a lot of things. And I'll, let me speak to that for a second, because I, I like to put things in very layman's terms mm-hmm. and simple and tell stories so people can remember. But when you look at the science of this, I'm going to put it in like uh, cartoon kind of frames because it's fun, right? Mm-hmm. So literally, the fascia system is 90% water and collagen. You know, that's what the research tells us. And roughly 10% are, are different types of cells, uh, fasciocytes, so fibroblast cells. Fibroblast cells, uh, similar to uh, osteoblast cells, are literally little spiders that, that crawl around, millions of these spiders crawl around the body everywhere. And they literally cast a web, just like a spider would cast a web, of collagen based on the type of stress or lack of stress we put on our joint system and on our muscular system. Now, what's interesting about that, when someone is sitting in a car ride for a long period of time, they're in the flex position, the hip flexors get locked up. Well, yeah, we understand there's some neuromuscular challenges going on, but but no doubt, the research shows fibroblast cells are casting webs and you're getting collagen buildup. And that's why when someone sits at a desk for 30 years with their shoulders rounded, you need massive therapy to break up that fascia. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and if you get up after the short car ride, you will break up the fascia, just like you would sweep away a spider web that just a newly casted web. Mm-hmm. So literally, this, this connective tissue in around muscles, in around muscle cells, groups of muscles, individual muscles, Based on the lack of stress or the type of stress we put on our body, we're signal, signaling with mechanical transduction, signaling the proper uh, or signaling a response for fascia to be created uh, in a specific way based on different stressors. That's outstanding stuff. So let, let's let's pivot a little bit. And I want to talk about the book. And, and first off, this is this is must read. In fact, I I bought this book myself, and then um, I was headed out of town, and I I gave it to our pitching coordinator in Massachusetts, and I said. I think it was Friday morning. I was like, give this to me by Tuesday because I'm leaving town and I'm taking it with me. And to his credit, he, he finished it up in four days. Um, so it's fascia training, a whole body, or excuse me, a whole system approach. People can find it on Amazon. And what I like about this book is this wasn't just like Bill, Bill Parisi sitting down and writing a textbook saying, I'm the expert. Here's what I've found. It was Bill Parisi saying, I'm intrigued by this stuff. I've acquired a lot of knowledge so that I can ask the right questions. I'm going to go out and I'm going to talk to the experts. I'm going to talk to Stuart McGill and get his take. I'm going to talk to Dan Paff. I'm going to talk to Thomas Myers. And you you went all over creation to accomplish this and and really pulled some some awesome insights from a variety of different disciplines together. So the the first one that, that jumped right out at me is in, in the book, Dr. McGill 
um, alluded to the fact that we may be confusing our fascial system with respect to the adaptations that come following different training approaches. The idea being we go in and we lift heavy, we create one kind of response. We go and we get into an aggressive stretching session, maybe do some functional range conditioning or Pilates or yoga. We have a different response. Do you think that there are optimal times and dosages with respect to each other? Are we confusing ourselves by throwing all those things into the same session where we lift heavy and then we stretch afterwards? There's no doubt about that. I still feel there's a lot of misinformation in the industry. I feel we live in the sagittal plane way too much. And I feel in a lot of high school and even college weight rooms, we're promoting injury by living in the sagittal plane way too much. So in this, in this kind of road trip I went on, I'm on a constant road trip, by the way, which is kind of really cool. Yeah. Uh, I'm in a point of my career now, I, I, I can get access to pretty much almost anybody in the world. And, and being on this Fascia Research Society Board of Directors has been unbelievable to have access to the greatest minds in the world, the, the people putting out the research. And I had the good fortunes to contribute some chapters some, some, to some really heavy-duty textbooks coming out. The, the stuff that you said isn't, might not always be so much fun to read. But, but to answer your question, um, one of the guys I came across, which you probably know, Michelle Delcourt, yes. uh, who created the Viper. Mm-hmm. And Michelle has been one of the guys that I've kind of, you know, really got together with now. We've become great friends and colleagues uh, over the last number of years. And he tells a really interesting story because he's kind of, you know, obviously, um, you know, dialed into this as well. And, and I tell this story. I think I told it in the book. So Michelle was a strength coach uh, for a Canadian hockey team and, you know, getting this guy stronger. This was a decade ago, a while ago getting them stronger, you know, get, you know, bench and, you know, squatting, traditional, just being strong. Mm-hmm. Went to the coach. How are my guys doing? They got to get stronger around the puck. Went back. Okay, let's get them strong. Let's change the periodization schedule. Let's do some different lifts. Let's get it dialed in. Goes back a year later. How are my guys doing? Got to get them stronger around the puck. Who's beat my guys? The farm kids. Mm-hmm. So the farm kids. So what does that mean? Omnidirectional, submaximal loading, doing chores, mm-hmm. you know, doing chores. So when you talk about are we maybe confusing things? I think we are because from a pure absolute strength standpoint, from an omnidirectional with limited degrees of freedom, with, with what most strength coaches are familiar with, right? Limited degrees, degrees of freedom, the load can be very high. You know, we're just, we're flexing at the hip, knee, ankle, you know, we're, you know, limited degrees. So the load's going to be high and we're going to hit a specific area of the body, specific muscle groups. It's going to be uh, in one plane of motion. And, and again, we live too long there. I, I'm not saying we don't do those things. Yeah, we need to do those, but they're overplayed. What we really need to focus on more is omnidirectional submaximal loading. The farm boy calls those things chores, <laughs> right? So when we think about omnidirectional submaximal loading, we're doing Lighter implements, med balls, Viper, we're using kettlebells, we're using them in multiple planes of motion to stimulate this mechanical transduction, to facilitate this fascia system that's going to give our body greater integrity and stability, which is going to allow us a higher level of motor recruitment. So, you know, I think we need to use these types of things, uh, you know, at least once to twice a week as a focus Mm -hmm. session. I think they can be used as a as a warm up, mm-hmm. as part of the warm up, these types of movements, but they absolutely have to be programmed in and they have to be specific and focused on training the fascia system to build a greater overall tensegrity model within the body to get more free energy. You know, they've done research with, you know, kangaroos, and now the research is out that we know kangaroos 
they expend a lot less energy hopping than they do walking, you know, because it's free energy. The, the, the energy is coming from this, this non-caloric dependent tissue that is upwards responsible in research up to upwards of 30% of our explosive power. You know, up 30%. It's a big deal. <laughs> from this, it's, a, it's a big deal. And, you know, you know, we, you know, talking fast twitch, white muscle fiber, red muscle fiber. Yeah. Yeah. I still believe that's valid, mm-hmm. but not nearly as, as uh, you know, the, the end all be all. It's not, not it's not the end. It, the fascia connective tissue is, is a huge element. And that's why when you look at different athletes, we talk a lot about a fascia driven athlete. A connective tissue athlete, you know, compared to a muscular driven athlete. LeBron James is more of a muscular driven athlete, when Kevin Durant is more of a connective tissue driven athlete. And you got to look at the athletes you're dealing with. And we kind of categorize our athletes, you know, our football players, right? Wideouts, DBs, they're more like the cheetahs, they're fascia driven. Your tight ends, your linebackers are more rhinos, right? Yes. They're a kind of a, a combo, a little bit of a combo, but more muscular driven. And your linemen, you know, the linemen are more elephants. You know, their training is obviously way different. You know, they, they, they should be doing more sagittal plane related stuff because they don't need as much degrees of freedom, interior alignment. So, you know, your, your wide receiver making an acrobatic catch, you know, that resiliency, that injury resiliency is very important to understand how to train the fascia system. That's tremendous stuff. So, and I guess the question then becomes, it almost is this, this dynamic of wondering, do I, do I harness what athletes are good at and make it elite? Or do I try to actually bring people to the other end of the continuum, right? So if we have a, an athlete that's already incredibly strong, sagittal plane dominant, not what we would necessarily consider like those, those limber PGA golfer types that, that Dr. McGillis talked about, do we have benefits? Because I, I know personally, like, you know, I look back on some of the athletes early in my career and we always thought, you know, it's easier to make a fast guy strong than it is to make a strong guy fast. So in many cases, we were successful just because you put some strength and some body weight on an underweight athlete who was really elastic already and it worked out great. But the question becomes, is there a point of diminishing returns where you kind of like get to the top of that bell curve and all of a sudden you start, you know, getting negative adaptations in those athletes because you've taken away from you know, kind of the natural athleticism, I guess, that they've had? Well, you know, to that point, that's very interesting. And I've, I've heard this from very reputable people. Um, the average, the 40-yard dash time um, for upwards of 60% of college players are slower in college than they were in high school. Um, <laughs> didn't they, didn't they heard, say that's because they cook all the numbers at the uh, the high school combines too? <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe not. But, 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 but there's no doubt. Yeah. Um, if 40 yard dash is important, right. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it is, you know, yeah. football, I, yeah. mean, I think they put a big weight on it, you know, um, why are they going down? And it's really because, you know, we're, we're, we are adding, we are living too much in that sagittal yeah. plane strength mode, strength mentality. So I think you look at the type of athlete you're dealing with, if they're fascia driven, yeah, getting, getting them strong is, is, is important, but you know, you could, you could. How strong is strong enough? Yep. And, you know, I'm actually working um, on a new book uh, coming out. And uh, a couple things about the book I'll, I'll say, too, real quick on the, um, the fascia training book. I want to make sure everybody understands that it's, it, there's, there's some exercise in it, but it's not an exercise-driven book. Yep. So I had a couple of comments where, you know, people thought it was going to give, you know, more exercise. We actually have them coming out with another book, Fascia Training in Application. But this gives a good foundation of the book. But I have another book coming out with Human Kinetics. Um, which I'm going to get into this even more around speed development, but some exciting stuff. The point I wanted to make um, about the 
about the fascist system and and understanding this this forty yard dash time and the athletes you know sprinting and these athletes getting slower. Um, it's because we just do way too much volume in the weight room and not enough running and sprinting and and yeah. just changing direction and just being agile. And I think you know we we put too much of emphasis. I interviewed Bill Kramer, Doctor Bill Kramer, who you know I think is one of the godfathers of of one of my mentors at UConn. He was one of, he yeah, was on my we, thesis committee. Great guy. Yep. Yep. So, you know, I had a conversation with him uh, because, you know, I'm calling everybody and he says all the research he's done two times body weight in a squat. Yep. You're good. Yeah. You know, two times body weight. And I think, you know, that's not an easy task. Yep. Right. I mean, you know, but we don't need to go above that. We, you know, and I think we, we, we spend too much time on that. And if you're a fascia driven athlete, a connective tissue athlete, that might not even be needed. You might not need up to two times. You got to look at, you know, how that athlete responds. What are his 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 drivers, right? What are his, you know, anatomical drivers? What are his, you know, just his DNA driver? What's what's making him really unique, and what does he respond to? So every athlete is an experiment. Every training session is literally an experiment, and you got to see, you know, what what are they responding to? And and I think that's really really important. Because, you know, Dan Path had three guys run sub 10 zeros, uh, under 10 in the 100 meter dash that didn't lower body weight train. Yeah, this is it. You know, that, did, that didn't squat, yeah. that, that li- very limited, very limited, uh, you know, lower body stuff, that whether because of injury or issues um, or they couldn't recover from it for whatever reason. So it's very individualized. And you got to see what are those, you know, anatomical drivers, what are those. Um, you know, just the, those physiological drivers for that athlete. And, you know, this is a really important discussion. How This is timely right now. We're, we're recording this, obviously, in late September. And they're a collection of, of baseball players, both college and, and, and professional, maybe not so much on the amateur side, really, with high school kids. But there are a lot of athletes who didn't have a season this year. So what did men, most of them do? They just basically went to the weight room and got brutally strong. And now we're staring in the face of a full off season when a lot of athletes are entering it and they're already strong enough. And that's a as crazy as it sounds. It's it it sounds good from a physiological standpoint, but it's terrible from a emotionally separating you yourself from your biases. Right? You like to lift heavy. What do you actually need to do from a physiological priority standpoint? Like, what do you say to an athlete that probably might need only lift like twice a week and then focus on a bunch of other stuff in the training sessions? It's it's a legitimate concern this year for the first time ever because of of what's ha- happened with the pandemic and seasons getting canceled. But you know, we I think we naturally count on this this ebb and flow, right? Where you go in season, you go off season. You know, in season presumably becomes something that that trains a lot of the elasticity of the, the fascial system and and develops those favorable adaptations while strength, you know, maybe in body weight tend to fall off a little bit. What do you do when you don't have that ebb and flow? Do you do you re- totally reprogram? Yeah, I mean, I think you know you, you made a couple of really important points there. You know, there, there's pretty high injury rate going on right now, right? Like a lot of ACLs in the NFL, a lot of things going on, and you know, hey, these guys didn't have access to to maybe training rooms. Who knows what they did? Obviously, um, you know, there's there could be a lot of different reasons why these things are happening. But to to, to address your your point, um, you know, I, I feel an athlete is is the best determining uh, factor. Like they they need to really study their own body. They need to know how they feel, how they adapt, how they're you know do they have that the, that skip in their step? Do they have that pop? They have to log and journal. You know how they're feeling. So so critical. 
And I think as professionals, for me, when I, when I work with my athletes, even my high school athletes, my younger athletes, their input, what they're feeling, how they're feeling, what they feel they get a response from is huge. So, you know, we, we will, you know, strength training is an important part of what we do, but we will, you know, go through a cycle where we might cut weights out completely for, you know, two, four, six weeks, you know, in the lower body based on, you know, what that athlete needs. I know when we were heavy in the combine training and athletes came to us um, to get ready for the combine. There's a good number of our athletes for a 10-year period because we, we had a, a really strong run for 10 years where we had an exclusive relationship with a company called Sports Stars. They got about 130 guys they represent in the league. Mm-hmm. And they just would, you know, they would buy us out, meaning they would buy an exclusive with us. We had a 10-year run there where a lot of times we would do no lower body lifting with our athletes for six weeks and get them ready for the combine. We would train the drills, train the techniques over and over and over and over again to develop that, that coordination. Now, fashion takes a long time to develop. It takes anywhere from, you know, 12 to, to 18 months to really get some type of, you know, um, a noticeable, you know, physiological response. But we feel and more of the research is coming out. We feel what we were doing uh, with these athletes by drilling this over and over again wasn't just neuromuscular, even in six weeks. Now I look back and I say, yeah, there there was definitely some things going on because now we know the fascia system has 10 times more of the proprioceptors than muscle. Yeah. Well, that's a communication system that to optimize those tests, you know, play a big role. So to answer your question, yes, we will reprogram. We will do different things outside the box based on the athlete's history, based on their needs, you know, based on their current power development, all that stuff. And we, we kind of answered this this next question I had jotted down, but I'm, I'm curious, as you've gone further down this, this rabbit hole with fascia, when you look back on some of the training you've used with athletes over the years, um, you know, what are the mistakes that you, you would have changed? And, and, you know, and also, you know, where were you in, in some cases successful by accident? I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. What are you thinking? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think we all probably at times maybe did too much traditional sagittal plane lifting. I think when, you know, back in the uh, early 2000s or, you know, the 90s, I think that um, one of the things that came out, um, Peter Wayne came out with a study in 2000 out of Harvard, talked about mass-specific force and, and you know, relative body weight being, you know, the key to, to speed. And, and then there was a lot of people that came out uh, that talked about and blogged about, you know, you don't even need to run to get yeah. faster, you know, like, yeah, you know, this whole kind of you know, uh, uh, other generation. I think I think Charles Poliquin kind of was leading that mm-hmm. that charge. Let his soul rest in peace. A, a brilliant yeah. man. Uh, but there was a mentality there that it was just all about strength. Yeah. You know, and I think that study kind of you know kind of got that going. You know, that kind of just sparked that mentality. That research study. Peter Wayans a phenomenal researcher. But then in 2010, up at SMU. He did more research, and then 2014 with Ken Clark, who's a personal friend of mine, who's a biomechanist, top researcher. Now we're seeing, hey, you know, strength plays a role, but now we understand this force signature when our foot hits the ground. There's a lot of things going on that facilitate that that force production, that rate of force production, and that ground reaction force. And it's not just strength, but it's the expression of that force. And the expression of that force now we're learning that it's coming from the whip from the hip. Uh, brand new research coming out from Ken Clark. It's it's currently, I think it just came out. Um, and, and the research from 2014, they did a study looking at these four signatures at ground contact that world-class sprinters compared to amateur sprinters. So 
So looking back, all this stuff, to answer your question, yeah, the whole weight training thing, I think we all did it too much. I think a lot of people probably still do it too much. Yeah. Um, what I've done right, though, we've never kind of went full board down that road. We always kind of stayed to our principles of, of what we do with med balls from my javelin background and a lot of movement skill training, a lot of uh, drill development. And, and now that's playing a big role because the movement skill training, you know, and we, what we do, we break down, you know, speed, obviously acceleration training, we, you know, top speed training, multi-directional speed training, which is comprised of deceleration, uh, change of direction and agility, which is reactionary cognitive uh, skill development. So we break down these, these, these modules, the way we teach speed and each module has anchor drills. They have a system to it that, that develops this neuromuscular coordination but also is developing the fascia system because we're working on omni planes, omni ranges of motion and uh, under some maximal loads. And I think the key to that is, you know, what we've done, that's what we've done right, you know, in, in some ways, maybe by accident. But the fascia system is definitely in play with all those things and understanding the expression of force uh, is really important because people express force differently. And Dan Path has done a lot of research on this, and it's based on their on their drivers, mm -hmm. the, the physiological drivers and how people express force, you know? So, you know, Saquon Barkley, you know, expresses force different than Odell Beckham. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, just look at their body types, mm -hmm. right? There's two different body types, but I'll, I'll kind of pause there for you. Well, I, I, you know, I, I think there's, you know, two things that I'm, I'm kind of stewing on is, is, you know, also, you know, we've got some good research. I know, uh, you know, a few different people have talked about this with respect to kind of um, a lot of the velocity-based training stuff that's, that's obviously grown in popularity over the years is that maximal strength actually sticks around really easily. Like, I'm, I'm honestly stunned at, you know, I, I obviously push, you know, 90% plus loading and like my own lifting much less than I used to when I was really competitive as a power lifter. And it, it always just kind of hangs around really well. And I know there's some research that shows that you can, you know, stimulate that strength quality as little as once every 30 days and it hangs around. Power tends to fall off a lot quicker, but maybe more anecdotally, um, and, and I'll tell a story about it. So Corey Kluber threw 249 innings through game seven of the World Series in 2016. So over the course of that season, it was a, a crazy high volume. I think that was the most in baseball, aside from maybe John Lester that year, who also played in the World Series. And I just remember him coming back and us wondering, like, what's what are we going to do? Like, you know, it's a short off season. you know, it went all the way to November 1st and you know, so you're, you're kind of wrestling with what happens when you have a, you know, big league offseason is usually shorter than a minor league offseason. And then when you go all the way there, you lose another month on top of it. And, you know, it was kind of a feel it out thing. But one of the things that, that blew me away that offseason was how quickly his strength came back. You know, it didn't fall off that much, but I mean, he was strong enough within three weeks of the offseason. And, and I've had that conversation with some other, you know, big league veterans, guys who have thrown 200 plus innings and gotten into their, you know, ages 32, 33, 34. What you realize is it's kind of just there when you go to get it. it. It hangs around a lot better the long you've been at it. And I think this maybe speaks to why we see so many guys. I can remember David Wright talking about playing lighter, not pushing strength work as much late in his career when he was kind of trying to come back from a lot of the injuries that, you know, that had, had put him on the shelf over the years. I think we're realizing there are a lot of veteran players who kind of discover this by accident. You know, and I don't know that it's so much that the loading is beating up on their joints or anything like that. It's just that it's it's not giving them the same bang for their buck that it gave them when they were 17, 18, 19. They, they can just tap into it a little bit easier. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And and I feel, you know, this because fascia has, you know, again, uh, so much, it's so rich in proprioceptor, proprioceptors. I believe, you know, that, that ability to co-contract. And I think this, 
you know, Stu talks a lot about agonist antagonist. I mean, that doesn't even exist in his world, right? Yeah. That doesn't, that's a, that's a old kind of throw that out the window. Um, the, the, the ability to co-contract and that, that, that neuromuscular coordination facilitation, not just from the nervous system, but from the fascia system and having that skill, um, you know, how to leverage and, and if the fascia is developed from doing power related movements over long periods of time, you're going to have a more robust structurally integrity based system. So imagine that powerlifting suit you know, that powerlifting shirt, imagine having that around your whole body around or around the specific skills that you perform as an athlete. Um, and, and that's supplemented with more, you know, this fascia wrapping that just gives you that, that structural integrity, why people wear, you know, sleeves or, or tights, you know, they have that feeling, it keeps the warmth in, you got that springiness. Well, this, this is what's developing in the body. And it's giving you that, that recoil, that free energy, that that stability around muscles, around joints, and I feel that you know the science is showing that now. You know, I mean, when 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 Robert Schleip did that ultrasound on Thomas Roller, I mean, he he was so excited. I mean, it's it's really it's 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 there, and we we are just discovering this. This is newly discovered stuff, which is you know, anatomy is you know, five hundred years we're dissecting. That's why I'm so excited. You know, we run dissection courses of unembalmed cadavers to really do a deep dive. We did it with the NFL strength coaches. We did it with medical doctors here in New Jersey last year. So a lot of fun stuff. And I think it's, it's cool because you know, we, uh, so I use my own master's thesis, right? As an example, I, I graduated from, from UConn, did my master's thesis connect collection, basically 04 into 05. But the research actually wasn't published in the JSCR until August of 2007, uh, 2007. So you're talking about like a two plus year wait on what we researched to actually getting to it. So a lot of times we discover these things anecdotally, right? And as, as I'm, as, as you're talking, about this i'm like man bill hartman talked about this to some degree on a recent podcast Stu mcgill hinted that greg rose has talked about it a little bit like all these people are kind of like we're, we're sniffing it anecdotally in the trenches on a daily basis with the people work with whether it's golfers or you know tennis players or mma athletes or whatever it is like you're actually seeing it structurally and, and it's leading to good yeah. research and we're we're picking up cool stuff so um yeah you know what's interesting i'll say when i talk to Stu about this i mean Stu knew about this for 20, Mm -hmm. 25 years. I mean, he was on it. And that's why he wrote the forward to my book. Mm -hmm. I mean, Stu doesn't just, you know, write a forward to a book if he doesn't really believe in it, right? So when I, when I talked to him, he's like, man, this is so awesome, Bill. I'm having such fun. No one ever asked me these questions and I have so much to share, you know? So he was, he was on this, but you know, he just, it wasn't something that he elaborated on. I mean, obviously he's unbelievable with the spine and I've learned a ton, but, but it, this brought out so much research that was either unpublished from him or stuff that he did that he published that was kind of forgotten. And, um, you know, that's where he was a, he was a big part of the book and we made some connections because he, he, he has worked with many, many high performance athletes uh, in the lab and uh, a lot of good things that we learned from Stu. That's incredible. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that's, that's, you know, I guess super intriguing about a lot of this stuff is that there are still people online that, that deny that fascia has a role in things, right? There are people that don't believe in manual therapy and in spite of like the body of evidence that, you know, these, these have been on cave paintings for, you know, 4,000 years dating back, you know, for, for way before our times, but we just don't always have the, you know, the, the research to back stuff, even though we know that it kind of works. So I, th- I feel like those are always intriguing discussions when people are just saying, well, you know, show me the, show me the peer reviewed evidence. And it's, it's just not always going to be there. 
Oh, well, I, well, now it's coming out yeah. in droves, you know, the Fascia Research yeah. Society. And, and again, the game changer has been the imaging equipment, yeah. the advancements in technology to see in vivo under the skin mm-hmm. on what's what's happening. So so that's really the game changer when people say, oh, why, you know, why now? What's it's it's technology. And we have cell phones, you know, 20 years ago, yeah. you know, 30 years ago. Like if you were to tell me I can have a conversation, that's the Jetsons. Yeah. Well, I was young. <laughs> That doesn't exist. Well, now it exists. All right. So uh, I'm actually going to read directly from the book. Page 96. This is a quote. It says, as I mentioned earlier, fibroblast cells are the architects of the fascia system. Basically, when fascia tissue is exposed to impact, vibration, pressure, or stress, an electrical charge is generated in the fascia tissue matrix that causes fibroblast cells to go to that spot and start producing collagen and other molecules as needed along those lines of stress, vibration, and impact. That was from the Dan Paff chapter. So an underlying theme yep. of this book is that this this fascial system is not just structures. It's an electrical charge more than it is just a collection of ingredients. So this this charge can obviously be positive or negative with respect to the performance outcome that we desire. So could you, could you say that this is a rationale for why we, we know those athletes that just feel like tight after a strain training station. It seems to linger. They feel better when they don't lift as much in season. Like, is this a rationale for like, is there individual variance in how we, we respond to a given stimulus? There, there's no doubt about that. In my opinion, my professional opinion, abs- absolutely. Again, those, those genetic drivers, um, you know, everyone is obviously unique and, and how they respond to different stresses is huge and no different than the muscular system, right? I mean, we respond differently, you know, somebody might get stronger or faster and, where they are in their development and what their experience has been, their training age and the types of load we put on, the speed of the load, like, you know, vibration, all, there's all these different elements. And I, you know, what's most important that the athlete really gets in tune with what they're doing and how they're feeling and how they're feeling from those previous sessions, you know, what they've done and, and getting them to have a bigger say in the programming. You know, and, and that's, you know, obviously with the younger kids, you know, they're all going to follow a base routine. And, and we, we see a lot of younger kids. We have a, you know, a, a very foundational, strong base routine. But as they get older and, and as you know, as they develop, it becomes more individualized. And I think, you know, considering this and, and adding adding this type of training. And, and again, a lot of people do this type of training, but I don't think they truly understand what it's doing or, or maybe the, the full purpose. And, you know, you know. Things like med balls, kettlebells, the Viper, you know, Michelle Velcourt's, you know, his his Viper is one of the best training tools for fascia. That's awesome. All right. So all the way back in 2010, uh, I saw Thomas Myers in seminar and he listed eight strategies for improving fascial fitness. So I'm curious, I'm going to read these off. And a decade later, are there any that you would add or subtract? So one, use whole body movements. Two, use long chain movements. Three, Use movements including a dynamic pre-stretch with proximal initiation. Four, incorporate vector variation. Five, use movements that incorporate elastic rebound. This consists of cyclic motions of a certain speed. Uh, As an example, cycling wouldn't count. Um, uh, Sorry, uh, six, create a rich proprioceptive environment. Seven, incorporate pauses slash rest to optimize hydration status. And eight, be persistent but gentle, and remember that prominent changes can take eighteen to twenty-four months. Any yeah. anything else yeah. that you you think jumps out? Yeah, I mean that's really well said, and and I think you know Thomas Morris, he's brilliant, mm-hmm. right? I mean he really he's really great, and and his audience predominantly is the manual works audience, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. 
you know, obviously he doesn't necessarily speak to the performance coach. That's not, not his deal. He'll, he'll even yeah. say that's that's not his expertise. So I don't think he maybe connected well to that audience. Uh, but everything you said right there is dead on. He is dead on. I would add, um, and he talked about elastic recoil, but um, when you when you utilize things like a med ball and you eccentrically load in a dynamic fashion and you, you're working on that deceleration followed by that reacceleration, all those elements play a big role. And I would say even breaking down that upper body or core deceleration skill and, and working just and teaching those things first. So you want to always start off when you start to, you know, move loads in omnidirections and obviously need to be submaximal because when we're submaximal, we can, we have a lot of degrees of freedom that we can train in, right? When they're maximal loads, we, we have a very limited degrees of freedom going back to the, the back squat with heavy weights. It's a, it's limited degrees and we use a med ball. It's, it's many degrees of freedom. So finding uh, loads that are, are optimal and, and, and safe and submaximal and first focusing and understanding that eccentric deceleration phase of that movement, practicing that and stabilizing that, holding that before you go into the reacceleration of that of that movement. Now, that's you know harder to do with, with maybe a kettlebell and certain things. I get that. But going you know really super slow through these movements first to kind of just groove the pattern, if you will, you know, when you go into these omnidirectional uh, actions to train fascia, you want to, you want to groove these movement patterns to optimize, you know, the technique, but also to get the body familiar and to let the body know intrinsically that it's safe. You know, we're, we're going to stay in this safe zone. So I would just add that when people start to do this, I'll also add another little interesting study that I did on myself, right? So I'm a big Herschel Walker fan. I don't know if I'm yeah. dating myself, Herschel Walker, right? So I probably one of the greatest or the greatest running back of all time in college, at least. Um, you know, he he claims that I met him a number of times and he claims he never lifted yeah. and all he did was run and push-ups and sit-ups. We know that story. And there are different athletes that that will, you know, that follow that prescription. Um, what's interesting is that I kind of experimented myself. I went on this kind of you know, I stopped squatting. I stopped lifting for a little bit, you know, probably over a year. Um, and I just did distance. You know, I just went out and not, not a lot, just a couple miles a day, a couple days a week. And uh, my my squat strength did not change at all. Interesting. You know, so I was banging 315 for 10, no wraps, no belt, deep, and just crushed it, you know. And um, it was really interesting because when I when I when I kind of went through that cycle for a year, and I said, you know, I'm going to really experiment with this. You know what? And you said, and I wasn't even really doing much power movements. I, I didn't really do. Now I didn't. I wasn't doing a ton of distance. I wasn't going out and running five miles every day. I was probably doing two miles, two to two and a half miles. You know, two to three days a week, right? But but being 210 pounds and and running you know, that distance and, and just, you know, not super fast. It, what I feel it's, it did, or it does is it, you know, with the, the body moving, all those organs, the system just oscillating. That's what Thomas Meyer says. One of the things is this oscillating, continuous yeah. bouncing motions. The, the research now shows that this oscillating, continuous, you know, my you know, ground contacts on a three mile run are thousands of, of ground, thousands of touches, thousands of elastic responses. On a on a on a few mile run, enough to recover from 
and get and 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 take advantage of that. But I just thought that was interesting because you know, listen to a guy like Herschel Walker. Now I'm not saying go out and run distance and don't listen. No, no, I'm saying I'm experimenting with the different systems that that get addressed when we do different types of training. So I used to be like, ah, distance, why are you doing distance? That's a, that's a waste of time. My attitude towards distance, because it's no different than kind of jumping rope, right? A lot of guys say, hey, Jim, what's this like secret jumping rope with boxers or, you know, jump rope and you'll dunk a basketball. I mean, you kind of hear these stories, you know, go jump rope. And, you know, whether it be jumping rope or, or jogging, I, I, I believe it's similar, you know, in a lot of ways. It's, it's similar in terms of the response we're getting from that, you know, uh, low intensity, um, you know, recoil. Yeah. And, you know, another really good point from this, you know, you kind of hinted at, at progressive intensity there. They use the example of yoga and the martial arts where there's actually a really gradual on ramp. Um, that was that was a, a theme I, I feel like I saw a couple times in the book that, you know, in, in weight training, we tend to be like, hey, uh, you know, 15 year old kids coming in, let's get them to squat for 100 as quickly as we can. Um, and I, I think a lot of people forget, you know, we've research that shows people can make, you know, strength gains on as little as 40% of one RM when they're when they're brand new to stuff. And just in general, do you think that's a mistake that we make industry wide as we push too fast and, and chase high level adaptations when there's some low hanging fruit that we could capitalize on much, much sooner? There's no doubt. My, there's no doubt. My whole program's been built off that. And it's funny. I use the martial arts example throughout the book, and when I explain what we do at the Parisian Speed School. So if you're a five year old, you go into martial arts or a white belt. You have very little coordination, and you know, you learn how to throw a punch. You learn how to kick. Then after a while, two, three, four, five years, you're ten years old, eleven years old. Maybe you're 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 a junior black belt. You're dynamic. You're explosive. That kid didn't lift weights, right? He used his body weight. What did he do? Day after day, he trained his fascia system. He's punching. He's kicking. He's jumping. He's doing jumping jacks. He's doing star jumps. He's doing all body weight dynamic stuff. So the, the Taekwondo athlete is the ultimate. The Taekwondo black belt athlete, Bruce Lee, is the ultimate fascia-driven athlete. Because the odds are they're not going to squat a whole, a whole ton. Maybe they will. But the odds are they don't, they don't live in the weight room. You know, they live all day long throwing punches and kicks and blocking and, and whatnot. You know, wrestlers are similar, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of just that pure, you know, strength. Um, but yeah, martial arts is a great example of understanding, you know, the speed development and, 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 and what we do with the Parisi school, again, we, we're teaching, you know, this, this motor vocabulary, just like a martial artist Taekwondo athlete. They have a movement vocabulary of blocks and defenses and kicks and punches. They put them together and during the competition. We do the same thing. We have a movement vocabulary for acceleration, multi-directional speed, deceleration, change of direction, reaction, cognitive skills, uh, top speed, maximum velocity. And then you train these elements at different times um, with focus, and then you put them together. And then ultimately, you know, it's time to... It's time to spar. It's time to play. Yeah. Then you put it together in a game situation. And I like it. And you know, maybe it speaks to my next question. But what what are some some must avoids if you're looking to optimize both short and long term, you know, fascia system fitness? And, and I'm thinking in the context of like, I'm sure you've seen you've seen you know hundreds of uh, probably hundreds of thousands of teenage athletes over the years where Accutane, right? You're going to see you know, four or five kids a year who have a terrible response to it, right? Um, we've heard yeah. about, you know, Achilles tendon ruptures in, in adult clients who go on statins, stuff along those lines. Yeah. So are, are there pharmacological or nutritional things that are definitely no bueno for, you know, I've heard of, you know, skipping warmups, things like that being problematic. What, what are the areas where you see people actually creating a, a harmful effect on the fascia system as opposed to not just getting a favorable one? 
Yeah, well, well, well first thing, uh, overstretching. Yep. I think, you know, like yoga, right? I mean, you know, Stumi Gill talks a lot about this. You know, you don't want to overstretch that, you know, those hamstrings. Like some of his greatest jumpers, some of our greatest jumpers have tight hamstrings, you know, are just, are just tight. You don't want to stretch out that elasticity uh, from the fascia system if you're, if you're an explosive athlete. So I think things like yoga for an explosive athlete can be very dangerous, mm-hmm. um, done in a way that uh, doesn't fit the needs of that sport. I think flexibility is a thing you only need based on your sports demands. So, you know, a 100-meter, 110 high hurdler, his, de- his demands on his hamstring flexibility is different than a basketball player. So, you know, you got to be really careful on overstretching because if you stretch fast, it's like a plastic bag, right? If you overstretch continuously, you can lose that elasticity forever. You know, you can, you can stretch out that elastic free energy way too much. And this is, this is proven by science. So to me, those are, that, that's one of the biggest things. When I hear, you know, a basketball player is going to go do yoga you know, I mean, listen, get myofascial release work done by a massage therapist or a physical therapist to work on you to break up specific areas that, that need to be broken up and understand where you're tight. Because, you know, you might, you know, have an issue with your hamstrings, but you know, Eric, it might yeah. not be in the hamstring. No doubt. It might be in the hamstring, you know, causing a forward pelvic tilt, yep. you know, but it'd be a lot of different things. So, so really like finding a really good therapist that's dialed in the fascia that understands tensegrity is huge. The other thing I will say the hidden gem is bone broth or gelatin, you know, taking in this collagen uh, to help accelerate the development and growth of fascia. So, you know, bone broth is a no brainer, you know, heat it up, drink it as replace a coffee or, or soup, uh, put some salt in it and you're good to go. Uh, so those are those are two of the real big ones uh, I would recommend in terms of keeping healthy, dynamic fascia and not over. Now, also look at your sport, right? If you're a yeah. belly dancer. Yeah. yeah stress. Do yoga. <laughs> Um, all right. So, and this is the one I'm actually super intrigued about. Um, and I remember in that same presentation that I alluded to earlier, Thomas Myers said, we, we probably know about 25% of what we need to know about the fascia system. And that, that was 2010. So we're a decade yeah. later. Where do you feel like the research needs to go next? What don't we know yet that we, we want to learn desperately? Well, well, this is what's so exciting. You know, I think right now, from a medical standpoint, they're making great progress and, and understanding um, uh, sickness and how what fascia how fascia plays a role in cancer and all these elements. These breakthroughs are are coming. You know, they're they're coming. The world of performance, and and this is why I, I I've been flattered to be to be on the board of directors of the Fascia Research Society because they would like you know they're they're hoping that I can bring this information to the performance world. And, and bring this research and help curate it and help deliver it uh, in more layman's terms. And, you know, my, myself and I have, you know, I have a great team behind me. You know, my co-writer, Jonathan Allen, who's, who's great, you know, a professional writer. You know, so I have a great team to help communicate these thoughts, communicate this information. But where we got to go next is we got to get more people talking about fascia, more people, you know, um, focusing on this element of fascia, training fascia, understanding how to train it, and, and, and sharing outcomes you know, really sharing outcomes. And that's, you know, I have the good fortunes of having about 700 performance coaches, you know, in our network that we're sharing outcomes all the time and understanding, you know, hey, what's really working well and what's not working so well. So we're, we continue to evolve our programming to get feedback 
to see we, where we can get better and to bring that to the masses, to bring this information to your audience, to you and, and, and have you guys start to think about this and continue these podcasts and share best practices that perform betters um, where we get, you know, feedback from people. So, you know, to me, that's where it needs to go. It needs to come into performance because we are still getting way too many injuries with all the science out there. Isn't, isn't this, doesn't, this doesn't make sense with all the science, all the training we do with injury rates, not significantly going down. They're actually either staying the same or going up. Don't you think there's something wrong? It's interesting. You know, I mean, like all the training we're doing, all the stuff we're doing. Now, granted, athletes are playing more. They're higher, you know, output athletes. They're, you know, more demands on their body. Uh, we understand velocities are much higher, limb velocities. We understand yeah. all these things. But but we're training a lot. Like mm -hmm. we should. The number one goal is injury resiliency. Mm -hmm. And the majority of soft tissue injuries are fascia related. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, if the majority of soft tissue injuries are fascia, when I say fascia, I mean all the connective tissue because um, when you talk aponeurosis, you talk tendons, ligaments, it, it, it's all the same collagen matrix. It's very similar. It's all, you know, it's just different layers. It's like the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean, you know, the, you know all, all different bodies of water, right? We talk about that in the book. Tom Myers uh, expressed that when went sailing on his boat. Uh, it was a great quote from Tom. So, but understanding that, you know, don't don't we need to look at this system more? If this is the system that's predominantly the the culprit of what breaks down during injury, and how do we address it more? So that hopefully that answers your question. No, I think it does. And you know, I'm, I'm even curious about just like the lifestyle factors, right? Whether it's you know sleep quality, hydration, things like that. Like are 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 some of these things? Do you think mediated by? Um, you know, some of those factors, right? You know, we, we know instances of injuries go sky high when we have college students who are taking exams or, you know, athletes who are sleep deprived, like, you know, all, all these soft tissue injuries are in one way or another, you know, implicated, um, you know, or implicate the fascial system. Do you think those, yeah. those are all players and, and is it immediate? Is it the sympathetic nervous system that's driving this? What is it that, you know, makes some of these lifestyle factors, whether it's poor hydration, poor sleep, something like that, you know, directly impact the fascial system in a negative way? Yeah, I mean, I think you hit the big ones. I mean, hydration is the number one element, yeah. right? I mean, it's all about when we foam roll, really, the benefits of foam rolling is, is squeezing the sponge of yeah. the muscle. And and getting new blood and getting new nutrients uh, into that into that muscle, but you know hydration is huge, and not you know a gallon of water in, in a ten minute sitting. Yeah. You know it's it's hydrating throughout the day. Yeah. It's 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 prehydrating. You know the day before and the you know, the morning of uh, of the game that you're playing that afternoon or that night, uh, and having that reservoir um, and and understanding you know how critical that is. And you know the other thing too when when you, we talk about just um, stress levels. You know, huge role. Mm -hmm. I mean, this this fascia is is really a key communication system. And when you're stressed, my, my anecdotal or you know hypothetical kind of analysis of this is it definitely plays a role in 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 the ability of the fascia system to do its job mm -hmm. and to facilitate you know what we need to have done. You know, co contraction, yeah. stabilization, and all these things are facilitated through fascia that we're learning now because of its rich proprioception. So, you know, all those play a role. And, you know, when you really think about it, Eric, it, it is a lot of common sense, right? Yeah. Like stress levels, keep them down, stay hydrated. Yeah. But unfortunately, yeah. common sense isn't too common. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always intrigued too, and, and, and we're going to actually look to have more like body workers and stuff like that kind of chip in. I've, I've got a good guest coming on in the future in that regard. 
do you think, you know, obviously one of the things the book does a great job of is outlining that this isn't just, they're, they're superficial and there's deep fascia, right? They, they have to, to some degree different responsibilities and all that. Do you think that, you know, we have athletes that adapt differently in different ways in the sense that like for me personally, right. And uh, I feel amazing after I have cupping done, I, I get very little benefit from dry needling. It's just who I am. And I have athletes that are the exact opposite. You dry needle them and they feel like a million bucks. You know, some that get on a foam roller and don't notice anything. Some where, you know, they, they feel dramatic improvements to range of motion. Like how do we, how do we actually like, um, I guess, explain the, the different responses to self myofascial release or actual manual therapy interventions? Yeah, I, I think uh, genetic one genetics plays a big role. Yeah. You know, I, I, our, our just our physical makeup. You know, where stuff is in the body. Yeah. You know, just where landmarks are. You know, they're different in, in everyone. Uh, number one, number two. I think lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, how someone is. I mean, like just just someone's lifestyle, their posture throughout the day. You know, um, I went down to see Dan Path right with my two sons. Like I just flew down there for five days. I hung out with Dan and. I use my two sons as guinea pigs. Like we worked them out, we did them, and all this stuff. And Dan noticed my son's, uh, you know, right hip was was tight. Um, something I didn't really take notice, but he took a, a much closer look, and we did a deeper dive. This was, you know, like five years ago. And um, you know, my son, I realized when he stands, when he's kind of just standing, he stands with his right foot typically externally rotated. Now, if you're just standing in a specific, specific posture or just sitting in a specific posture with your feet, and a lot of times we, we stand or sit and our feet are externally rotated, well, guess what? What's happening at the hip if you're just in that position for long periods yep. of time? Fibroblast cells are locking down that hip joint to be externally rotated. Mm-hmm. So, so we have to break those fibroblast cells up. We have to be aware. Awareness is number one, right? You want to lose weight? Well, if you don't have an idea of how many calories you're putting in your body and you might have that great Caesar salad, you think it's great, yeah. but it's 1,500 calories, is awareness, <laughs> right? So awareness, man. It's awareness. It's just knowing how are we standing throughout the day? Mm-hmm. You know, how are we sitting throughout the day? We know if we sit and we're an accountant and we sit in a chair for 15 hours a day, we know our shoulders, they're all going to get locked down. Well, that's happening throughout the entire joint system. So it's very prevalent for an, uh, an office worker to have these issues in their thoracic spine and, and shoulders and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Well, as athletes, if we're in a classroom all day and you know we, we're, we're in certain postures for long periods of time, these are limiting factors that need to be addressed. Yeah. I think the other thing, too, is, is to speak to kind of some of the, the, I guess, the components of fascial fitness that, that Myers talked about is he made a point, be persistent but gentle. Um, this is something that you also echoed in the book. Prominent changes can take 18 to 24 months. This isn't like the muscular system and the, you know, where you can get crazy hypertrophy or even the neurological system where, you know, you can see, you know, you can put 250 pounds on somebody's deadlifts in, in six to 12 months. Um, and that's where you get into trouble. So, do you, you know, you could even make the argument that that's one of the things that we're wrestling with in, in professional and college sports right now with injury rates being sky high coming back from kind of this quarantine period is that we haven't given the fascial system time to keep up with a lot of the demands that are placed on the muscular system and sport participation or the training for it. Right. No. And I think you know, we're a society that we want instant gratification. Yeah. And I feel... I feel the fascia training, the fascia system is not going to give you that. So that's why I almost like to classify the fascia related stuff we do as kind of like an extended warm up or, you know, sell it to my athletes in that fashion, you know, because it really is a way to really stimulate 
um, and, or, or use it maybe at the end of a session where we might, depending on what we're doing, if we're doing like a speed development session or an acceleration session, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll program in some, you know, some omnidirectional, some maximal loading type stuff like med balls or Viper, things of that nature. Yep. But so it, it just kind of, it's incorporating these elements that really create lines of stress, uh, you know, outside the center of mass that, mm-hmm. that puts uh, lines of stress through the body in different vectors. Um, you know, off off the center line that while the muscle is at length, you know, I think that's a secret, you know, because we're always facilitating contraction as we we're shortening muscles as we contract, you know, it's 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 contracting, co-contracting multiple muscles along along the, the lines of the um, outside the uh, center of mass mm-hmm. and, and while the muscles elongated and, and just creating a stress on the system that's different that the body has not seen before, but but will see in sport. So when, when an athlete is, is accelerating or making a diving catch and putting in, contorting his body in all these different angles under, under different forces, you know, gravity and all these different elements and facilitating limb speed, you know, that, you know, we need to train for that. We need to create this inner armor, this, this suit of armor that can that can hold us together better, basically hold us together when we're going through these dynamic motions and the squat and the bench and the dead and the step up. That's not preparing us for those things. No doubt. All right. So uh, you've got some cool stuff in the works. You got to fill us in on a what's what's ahead and b where folks can can find out more about it. Yeah, yeah. C- a couple of great things. I mean, well, I, you know, obviously, if people want stuff related to the Parisian Speed School mm-hmm. Speed Training, this is all part of what we do. Mm-hmm. So. What's exciting is, you know, the Parisi organization has access to all this. That's one. We have a lot of great resources on ParisiSchool.com. The Fascia Training Academy, which is something I created a number of years ago once I started doing all this research and diving in. And we have a great, you know, relationship with the Fascia Research Society and the top, you know, research experts in the world. And under the Fascia um, Training Academy, we're running dissection courses, Mm -hmm. uh, unembalmed cadaver dissection courses. And we have a couple coming up. And I'm excited to do one with you yeah, on the shoulder, absolutely. which we talked about, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, co co-work that one. I'm yeah. going to bring uh, one of the top, you know, researchers to uh, co-host with us mm-hmm. and, and that can do a deeper dive into, into the science a lot deeper than I can do. And that's, what's fun that I'm doing right now. So I'm this conduit, you know, of the researchers to kind of, you know, again, curate some of this information and, and put it into words that, that people can understand. So running these, uh, these cadaver courses, which we're going to do virtually, uh, but but have the cadaver in front of us and, and then go back and forth and oscillate to the cadaver, to training, to faulty movements, back to the cadaver, back to training protocols, which I think could be fun. And then, um, you know, we got a couple more books we're working on. Yeah. So this fascia training in application to give people more, you know, specific exercises, which the first book, the only knock on the first book was, you know, it didn't have enough application in it. And it wasn't truly an application book, uh, as you know, uh, but we're working on that. And we have another book. Um, um, another book coming out that's actually going to be published with human kinetics, but we're very excited about uh, on speed development. So, um, you know, we have a couple things uh, in the works that's really exciting. And this whole fascia element is uh, taking a life of its own. That's awesome. And so the, and I'm going to I'm going to sing your praises for a second. This book was fantastic. Um, it was a it was an awesome read, uh, something you can read quickly, too, because it's very it's, it's storytelling um, with with great lessons uh, intermingled. Now that you get exposure to 
you know, people who are who are doing this at a high level in a, in a lot of different capacities, whether it's clinical, more strength conditioning oriented, and and you get and when you can tap into guys like Thomas Myers and Dan Path and Stuart McGill in in a, in a single book, um, you know, it's it's a surefire winner. So fascia training, people can check it out on Amazon. Um, Bill, this is awesome. We really appreciate you taking the time to join us and, and share some insights on a, an emerging field that you know you're at the forefront of. So so thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me, man. I'm a fan of your work. You do great stuff, and uh, keep educating the uh, the coaches out there. I know, I know, everyone loves you, man. And congratulations on your, all your success. I'm so sad I missed you in Orlando. You were supposed to speak at our <laughs> national conference, and uh, everything got shut down on uh, March 14th. We were in Orlando. Remember, yeah, like, like, like going home, it was crazy. You're not but, kidding, uh, man. We're ready for 2021. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure, my man. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.